I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and walk you through the ins, the outs, and the nitty gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... Speed Racer. What is Speed Racer? Well, it's a Japanese animated series that was then adapted by the Wachowskis and Warner Brothers into one of the most visually inventive films of the last 50 years. It also was a massive box office flop. So, why did the film fail? And, what about the film is so visually inventive? Stay with us and find out. Okay, so we're going to get to Speed Racer in a second, but first, let's just remember where the Wachowskis were before they made the film. They had just made The Matrix 2 and 3, and had been critically lambasted for their efforts. They then wrote, but did not direct, Fever Vendetta. Fuck that movie. That's what I'm saying, man. Fuck that movie. Basically, they'd been around the block, seen a few things, taken some lumps, and were looking for their next directing effort. The impact that The Matrix had on cinema almost can't be overstated, from the production design, to the editing, to the cinematography. Think about the oversaturated color palettes, the costumes, the emphasis on choreography and timing. The film blew the doors off of everything. The bullet time shot alone has been ripped off by basically everything that's been produced and released since. The superhero film genre is ostensibly descendant from the aesthetic of this one shot. Yeah, the the, the bullet time shot has gone from being a often parodied piece of iconography to something that has sort of like transitioned into just becoming a open source public domain uh, visual reference that has lost its original context, which is kind of uh, funny considering that the whole concept of the matrix was bor- was based off of the idea of like a simulacrum, but that there, you know, that, that, that visual vocabulary is used a lot still in cinema to the, and there are probably a lot of people that just don't even know what it's from, you know, you know, back whenever you were a kid and you'd watch Looney Tunes and, you know, you had character, you had like Bugs Bunny doing a Peter Lorre impression and you just had no idea who Peter Lorre was and you just knew that. And then later on, you learn who Peter Lorre is and you're just like, oh, like, that's what that was. I just thought that was like a weird. You're so he familiar with a voice. Yeah, you're so yeah. familiar with it. Yeah, uh, it's it's like that. And it's at that point, like everything becomes that it goes from parody to a seamless public domain piece of visual vocabulary that is used in in cinema with no original none of its original context. Yeah, I mean the the thing that's so impressive about it though is is the fact that it is so hardwired into the movie. Like that 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 shot is not a stylistic flourish. It's not in Wonder Woman when Diana is running at a bunch of Nazis and uh well German soldiers are not Nazis cuz it's World War 1, right? Uh, she's running at a bunch of German soldiers and then she jumps in the air and the camera slows down and then it speeds back up and she punches them like that. Why does the, why does it do that? Well, I mean, I guess it evokes a feeling and it's a stylistic flourish and it's an authorial fingerprint from, uh, the director, but 
there's no actual reason for that to exist. Whereas the Matrix bullet time shot of Neo standing on the roof of that building, the agent pulling his Desert Eagle and firing, and then the camera shutter speed super expanding and and everything slowing down. And then you you as the viewer circling Neo as he is using his superpower for the first time and physically moving through space in a in an inhuman way is a part of that character's arc. It's like the, I mean, it's basically the third act climax of the movie. No, second act climax. Well, I guess this, whatever. It's a, it's a, it's a focal point of that character's journey that that moment is integral and you can't take that movie out. You can't take that moment out of the movie and have it still be the same. Yeah. I mean, you, you talk about in a second, you're, you're, you're talking about the idea of the way that the matrix plays with, uh time um but i think another thing about the matrix is the way that it utilizes data like that the 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 movie um a lot of its a lot of its visual structure and visual vocabulary is based off of registering data in a visual way so you know much like the you know the the whole thing about the code and the way that you know it's just a bunch of numbers and then he he eventually is able to see the code and then we we get a we get a sort of almost like a stylistic metaphorical representation of him learning to read the code seamlessly where we look and we see the code and then it just kind of becomes like one of those magic eye paintings and it just turns into visual information that we can see. And we know that that's sort of a metaphor and that's not really what he's literally seeing, but it, it translates it to us in a way that immediately makes sense. And the bullet time thing is another example of that, of examining his that 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 character moment, that 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 progression in his character arc in a visually uh, informational way. We, we, We get to see it from every angle. We register all of the different data points of what's going on. As opposed to uh, somebody saying what's happening or even just seeing it, we, 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 we get to see it, but we get to see it from a data driven perspective as opposed to a visual perspective or a, a, an emotional perspective, I guess. The thing that separates the Wachowskis from other filmmakers is that they are equally as interested in writing aspects like theme and character as they are in directorial elements like visuals, timing and design. This is very apparent in Speed Racer. The visuals reinforce the character and the theme and vice versa, but we'll we'll get into that in a minute. The key standout of the film is the editing. Context is key for any storyteller. The relationships between the various opposing obstacles, characters, and themes. And the Wachowskis knew this when they were going into Speed Racer. They wanted to get away from the visual language that they had created with the Matrix. You know, you just like are so, you go to a museum, like, I don't know, do you guys go to the Art Institute, one of the most amazing places in the entire city? But you walk in there and look at the unbelievable range that you can represent a human face. I mean, the, the aesthetic juxtaposition in the Art Institute of just the human face is so incredible. Sometimes you can't even see that it's a face but then the artist will say, yes, I'm painting my wife here. (laughs) And we just feel like right now, cinema is kind of like the 12th century painting, painters in the dark ages where they had to work under the Catholic church and basically go in every single representation of Mary looks identical for like 500 years. (laughs) 
And that's kind of what movie aesthetically kind of has this claustrophobic absolute straitjacket where it's like movies must look a certain way or audiences will not go see them. Right. It's like you guys are like the Catholic Church. <laughs> <laughs> If a movie looks weird, you guys go, oh God, that's weird. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, the thing she says there, which I think is so on point, is that like, It, it's, it, it's that way both from a visual standpoint when you have, you know, mega studios like Marvel or Star Wars where the films have such a codified visual aesthetic, but also when you, it, from, a, from a writing standpoint where you have the Marvel movies. And I like a lot of these movies, but they're the fucking same story every goddamn time. The thing that I relate to there so much with what Lana Wachowski says there is that, you know, she's talking about how because film is such a commercialized medium, you have to play the middle ground and you have to be applicable to a conservative 40-year-old woman in Duluth and a, uh, you know, extremely liberal uh, 19-year-old in uh, Florida, whatever, you know, geographic regions, different countries, uh, language barriers, like you, all of these things need to be taken into account and attempted to mitigate risk on a financial level. So because of that, you end up with like three or four different types of stories, right? And each one of those stories is only really just like a riff on the other versions. They're, they're not drastically different in any way. And that is the same way with visuals where you, you know, all of these Marvel movies have a blue color palette. They all have you know, uh, typically an opening sequence that's a big fight scene and then a character building 20 minutes and then they go on their first mini adventure which sets up the villain and then, you know, their life starts to fall apart and then they have some sort of conflict that stems from the villain and their interaction in their personal life and then they must, you know, have a rousing third act battle with the villain that typically involves a large army over a city. Yeah. And that can be said for the Avengers. It can be said for Spider-Man. It can be said for Captain America. It doesn't matter the fucking character. Marvel uses that formula every time. And yeah. look, and it's some of those are good. Some of them are also really bad. Yeah, I mean, and it's not just the it's not just the story, but it's just every aspect of the of the film, the 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 visuals, the compos the shot composition, the overall tone um and aesthetic of the movie. I was actually just literally talking about this a couple hours ago um with my friend Michael Uh, shout out to Michael. Shouts. Michael Armendariz, you're listening to this. And if you're not, this will be the test. If I don't get a text from you being like, oh, you mentioned me, then I'll know you don't listen to this fucking show. And then you're canceled. Um, uh, but we were, we were just, we were just talking about this because he was kind of saying that he's annoyed by the fact that Flashpoint is going to be the first Flash movie that's made. And that, that would be the equivalent of if like the first Spider-Man movie ever made was was Spider-Verse, where you're just yeah. like, what the fuck? Like, what is this? Like, you, you're just going to introduce him to us like this with this crazy sort of like metatextual story that you need to have all this preconceived context of the character and their story to really understand. And and we were talking about that and we were talking about how Warner Brothers has never been been able to like get like even footing because they're always struggling to catch up with what Marvel did. And the reason why they got so behind is because back in the early days, back you know, with the Christopher Nolan movies and the start of the Marvel Cinematic Universe with Iron Man and stuff like that, like they just chose financially from a business perspective, from a franchise perspective, they chose the wrong strategy, which was investing in 
sort of auteur filmmakers to to build their franchise. So as as great as those Christopher Nolan Batman movies are varying degrees from movie to movie, even if you think those are the best fucking movies ever made, they invested all of that time and money into this guy that was like, I'm done. I I made these three movies. There's no way to build any kind of cohesion from movie to movie with the way that they chose to like, oh, we're going to have Christopher Nolan or we're going to have Zack Snyder, who, you know, is sort of an auteur in his own right, although I am not a fan of his at all. But he has a very distinctive style and a a distinctive approach to filmmaking. Those universes are sort of like they're self-cauterizing and they're self-contained. And once they built the once they built the DCEU off of the foundation of the Zack Snyder movies, it's like, how do you make a Wonder Woman movie in that context? How do you make uh, any of these other movies in that context? So it's so fractured and splintered and it's it's very piecemeal. And they've just struggled to to find footing with that. So now at this point, it, for lack of being able to build this like cohesive cinematic universe like they want to do, they're just trying to like basically impress you by being like Batman versus Superman flashpoint. Like, like they're just trying to like do these big events as opposed to trying to build this cohesive world. And what, what, what Marvel studios was smart in doing from a franchise building perspective was invest in these sort of like company men who all kind of like we're just going to make whatever thing based on a, a Bible that the studio wanted them to make. So it's like, you know, here, you know, this is like how we make these movies and this is the way that shots look and this is how the characters are. And this is like what Thor's sense of humor is like. And this is what Captain America's morals are. And, you know, you have to make everything within these parameters and all these filmmakers, you know, like Peyton Reed's and John Favreau's like, they'll just do that. They'll be like, okay, I, I have this, this set of instructions and I will make a solid movie within these parameters. And in that way, they've been able to make this really cohesive cinematic universe from, from movie to movie with surprisingly very little contradiction. It's impressive in, in, in its, in its entirety, But the issue with it, going back to what you were saying before, is that it's kind of set the tone for the uh, the summer blockbuster. It's completely stripped our blockbuster movies of any kind of like style or form. They're all just kind of like fit within a template. And there's just all these boxes that you have to check both story wise and visually. And so. All of the movies just they they they're the same. They look the same by design because they want to feel like this cohesive universe. They want you to feel like all the movies are kind of like made by the same entity. They don't want it to be like that's why, you know, Edgar Wright didn't do Ant-Man because he wanted to make an Edgar Wright movie. And that just honestly wouldn't have worked within the Marvel Cinematic Universe. It would have been real fucking weird it, it, if I think the only reason why Ragnarok worked and it had such a specific style to it is because it was off in outer space so it was like oh this is like some other area of the universe so it's kind of different like i think that's why that was allowed to happen um but otherwise they all have to have this very specific look and it's kind of it's it's contributed to this overall kind of generification of blockbuster movies in a way where i think in concept they're all really boring um, and they can be executed in specific situations really well. Uh, it all depends on how you approach them. The execution, uh, the characters within those templates can be really compelling. 
But in the macro, it's just really uninteresting. I agree. <laughs> With the Matrix, they had created a very specific visual language, one that had an emphasis on the delimiting of time and space. Within the story, anything was possible, which was represented physically by time slowing and the camera moving through it. Film is a medium predicated on time. In many ways, the Wachowskis breaking time over the course of the movie rewrote the code of what film was capable of as a medium, which led directly to a tidal wave of imitators and stylistic clones. The Wachowskis were aware of this going into Speed Racer. They didn't want to be the 700,023rd person to rip off bullet time. They wanted to do something new and unique, boundary pushing, in a new way, which is how you get Speed Racer. Which is crazy because everybody, no, I mean, near, nearly everybody, unless you, it's like you, you kind of only have two options. You're kind of like damned if you do, damned if you don't. You either become a self-parody or you break off into a, a wildly different direction and people hate you for it, basically. Like, you, yeah, like that's the yeah. two options you have. You either get hated because you've you've rested on your laurels and just slowly morphed into a caricature of yourself, or you kind of, like, get tossed out with the morning trash because you didn't make another Matrix. As the Matrix was about the slowing of time and moving a camera through physical space, bullet time, Neo and Smith fighting in the subway, the Wachowskis' interests became inverted and evolved, and took people and things and objects and visual elements and crisscrossed them in one continuous shot, breaking time in a new way. Speed Racer was about the moving of narrative through space causing the fragmentation of time. Think of it this way, the Matrix had a single point of view that stopped time and then moved through a physical space. Speed Racer has multiple points of view in the same moment in time, not intercutting with multiple shots sequentially, but having literal multiple things happen simultaneously within the frame. Right. And so you go to this place where you start like thinking about what's possible and you, you know, I love modern art and you know, I love modern literature and I love the way that postmodern literature, postmodern authors have been able to really assault the form of literature in all sorts of really interesting, cool ways, in, including interjecting pictures. You know, now it's like legitimate. And, um, but they take a, something like as simple as a sentence, right? So in cinema, a sentence is a cut. It's from one, one beginning of one cut to the end of another cut. And we were, we were so sick of sentences, you know, we're like, uh, uh, and you read Melville or you read Joyce or you read even Rick Moody where he has like this one sentence that goes on for like 80 pages <laughs> and this is how my brain works like my brain doesn't have sentences I'm like I'm talking now I can probably talk endlessly and I'm thinking of this script that I'm working on at the same time and I'm thinking about something we were just we were looking at a trailer for Jupiter and that's going on kind of and there's almost no there's no sorting or it's just all happening and I can kind of access them at different that's moments. A, that's so the topic that Lana Wachowski is bringing up there is this idea of, and I, I don't know if I put it in here, but they, in, in, in that interview that they did, she also talks about, um, she also talks about Pablo Picasso and mm -hmm. his cubism, you know, seeing a face 
from multiple perspectives at once, having the side of a face, the front of a face and the back of a face at the same on the same picture plane. Yeah. And I feel like that sums up a lot of the artistic kind of hubris behind the goals of the visuals in Speed Racer. Um, and I, I think it's so fascinating that you would try and do something that ambitious with fucking Speed Racer. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's, uh, yeah, you, 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 you know, similar, similar to, I guess, The Shining or, you know, you know, a movie where a relatively straightforward horror story was taken and turned into this sort of uh, densely symbolic piece of visual poetry to the point where Stephen King hates it because it's just not the thing that he wrote. Um, the, it, it's, it is really fascinating to see them sort of take, and I, and maybe you know more about this, but I don't know. Cause I, I definitely was, you know, reading up about it and kind of seeing that like a speed racer movie was in some various different forms of development since the nineties Past through different directors and things like that. And then the Wachowskis ended up getting it. So I don't know necessarily if they were specifically very passionate about Speed Racer and they wanted to do this. And it was like, we want to do the Speed Racer movie. Or if it was just kind of like a thing that they used, Um, like they've they've been handed something and and they kind of did a thing with it. Um, I don't know which one it is because I. Couldn't really find any information about that. But either way, it's super fascinating to see um, something taken and be utilized as this jumping off point or this point of context for doing doing something wildly different with it. It's like, you know, it, it, it didn't as we're going to talk about and as we've talked about a little bit before a lot of what they did a lot of the experimentation that they did with the editing with the visual language with the storytelling like it could have been it could have been done with any movie it, it didn't need to be speed racer and but also it needs to be speed racer and it would like be the, and it would be less weird if it was some original idea that they were like holistically we're creating this world and it's got all these different elements to it and we're telling the story in a new way uh kind of the way that fucking James Cameron talks about with Avatar. Um, but the fact that it was Speed Racer in which they've done this with is so strange in a really, really cool way. One of the people that they call out is James Joyce's Ulysses. So what does it mean to make a reference to James Joyce's Ulysses? Well, the Irish author James Joyce published a book in 1921. The book follows a man over a single day in 1904 it was famously written as an avant-garde stream of consciousness style, as a stylistic flourish, including literally no punctuation marks. This is exactly what the Wachowskis were attempting to do with Speed Racer. Look at the intro credits to the film. They immediately set up a visual and thematic element right off the bat. Yeah, it gives you all the information that you need to be queued up to to understand what you're going to be in for, because essentially, and it's it's... It's kind of it's genius in its simplicity. Uh, visually, from a graphic standpoint, it's very complex, but conceptually and structurally, it's really simple. And it and it perfectly it perfectly encapsulates the concept of the editing. Usually, whenever you watch a movie in the beginning, there are a series of watermarks 
there are three or four different production companies and a, and, and a distribution company and a studio. As the movie starts in, they show you all these different production logos in a row. Everyone's familiar with that. That, that, that. Anybody who's gone to the movies, even if you know nothing about filmmaking or or the movie industry, you know that feeling of the movie starting and you hear the the little music cue kind of come in and you and you see like and you see like five different production logos and they come one after the other and they're all very different because they're from these different production companies there's no continuity between them so they'll stylistically all look completely different and this movie immediately establishes what you're in for because it takes all of these production logos instead of showing them one after the other it's a sequence where in which a production logo happens and then like the next one sort of like just kaleidoscope yeah it just comes into the frame like there it's all one thing not just a kaleidoscope but it's like it's a single shot with a single continuity where you're bringing in all these different elements that would normally be separated so immediately you're like throw out the fucking rules out the window because this is is funny because when you're watching the movie it's completely unlike anything else you've ever seen but at its essence if you strip away the aesthetics that is the same idea as the intro to the matrix because the matrix is the warner brothers logo made out of digital code yeah the matrix code and then it turns into the whatever village roadshow matrix code like it's the same they're using the same playbook but in a completely different way um and it's so impressive because it's almost kind of like I read the book, I saw the play. Yeah, it's fucking nuts. It's nuts. I, 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 I mean, we haven't. We're little. We've been talking for what, like a fucking hour, and we've only just talked about the logo. We've only just begun to live. Speed Racer fucking rules. Speed racer fucking rules. But that's the point, though. The, the fact that we've been talking for an hour and we've only gotten to the pr- the the production logo is is kind <laughs> yeah. of the point. It's it, the, yeah. th- this this movie is so dense in what it's doing that we are so excited right now. We are cutting each other off and interrupting each other and tr- trying to, like, get to our own things. And we're we're talking about the production logo. We're talking about the part at the beginning where it's like Warner Brothers, the company that made this movie. <laughs> we haven't even we haven't even budget seen a car reports. Race. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Uh, we control the world, except not really because we're not Disney. I just wish they had the fucking frog dancing. Dude, how amazing would that have been if he would have been like, <laughs> and he like kaleidoscopes into the logo. <laughs> the story of Speed Racer focuses on a young race car driver as he attempts to ascend the ranks of a near future where racing is a way of life. Every good movie is secretly a metaphor. Yes. The film is literally about a boy who thinks his brother is dead and attempts to become the greatest race car driver alive because his brother never could. But it's also about something much deeper.
do 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 demon humming songs that he only knows from his planet that humans don't recognize. Oh, hey, Dave. Uh, do you by any chance happen to have any more of those, uh, pixie box book things that you make or whatever? Hey, Hillsmer, uh, you mean comics? Yeah, yeah, something like that. Uh, well, I don't have any with me right now, but I do have two new comic book series that are starting up. Uh, I wrote a Star Trek series, Star Trek Voyager 7's Reckoning, which comes out November 11th. And the way the comic book industry works is that you have to pre-order comics in order to make sure that the stores order enough. If you wanted to pre-order it, you would go to a comic book store or go online and use the code SEP200455. I also have a Create Your Own series coming out November 25th called Night Hunters with artist Alexis Zirit, which is about two brothers in Grand Caracas, 100 years in the future, one of which becomes a cop, one of which becomes a drug dealer, and they have to fight their way through the seedy underbelly of the dystopian Venezuelan police state, which you could pre-order with the code SEP201264. Yeah, 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 yeah. Great, 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 great. Cool, cool, cool. That uh, sounds amazing. Love it. Love everything that every word that you just said. Uh, I'll, I'll take whatever. 50. Really? Wow. I didn't know. Uh, I didn't know you read comics, Hilsmer. Oh, you're supposed to read them. There's a thing about space demons where when it's the summertime, we actually get very cold instead of hot. So I was actually just looking for some kind of kindling for the fire in the living room. Oh, that explains what that bonfire was. That was a sex thing. So the James Joyce thing, um, you know, there's other examples of it, you know, like William S. Burroughs and the way that it was a similar writing style, just stream of consciousness, no real continuity in in uh, progression. In fact, the way he would write is like he would literally like write blocks of text and then like cut them up and like throw them on the ground and mix them up. And so the, uh, you know, like Naked Lunch, that book is basically like a bunch of different stream of consciousness blocks of text that are like randomized in their presentation. doesn't matter which thing comes first. There's no, there's no temporal continuity to it. Um, it, the, the, uh, the, the movie does a similar thing, uh, in the way that you are receiving a bunch of information. Obviously there's some, continuity to it there's a there's a beginning middle and end of a story the story has a relatively conventional rise to fame hero's journey type story but in terms of its presentation it favors information delivery over continuity like it's constantly showing you information that you need to know and it doesn't matter where it's happening or when it's happening and it's genius in the way that it knows that and it knows it does. It's not scared to break those rules for fear of confusing you. All it cares about it has one goal and it is to deliver you information, whether that is plot or a character's facial expression during an emotional moment. And it delivers that information to you, not only just in very in very inventive ways, but in very efficient and effective ways. And it doesn't care if you don't know what's going on necessarily because it's delivering the information that matters to you. And also it's, it's the thing that's so interesting to me about the 
what you're talking about of the kind of like the the means by which information is delivered is that there's such a codified visual language around character interaction and around chase sequences and like every every visual thing in a film has more or less a rule book associated with it there's the 180 degree line we have basic building blocks of story like a wide a medium a close-up you know uh uh put the camera on a jib oh now we're gonna dolly in like there are all these building blocks of these types of shots that exist and directors can use them to create almost like chords in a song right if if the movie is an album and the sequences you know a chase scene a character scene a, a fight sequence if those are all the songs that make up the album the individual chords are the shots right there's the um aaron sorkin two characters are going to talk for 15 minutes walk and talk thing you know you put the camera on a um on a steady cam and you have the steady cam guy walk backwards through an environment as two characters walk through the environment and go, well, Andrew, you know, we're, we're here talking about some stuff and we're going to deliver a snappy dialogue and it's going to be funny and cute and cool. Hey, what's up? I totally didn't write this while I'm on cocaine. I've been sober for 20 years. What are you talking about? You know, like that's we write on the sketch comedy show, but we're all really sad, though. <laughs> exactly. Yes. And and all of those things at this point in time are more or less codified right like we all know what the building blocks are we all know what the chords are what the notes are and you put them together and you make a fucking song and you put that song on the album and you release the album and people go wow this fucking thing sucked or wow this was great the thing that is so mind-blowing to me about speed racer is that every one of those chase sequences and almost the whole movie really they are using this you know joycean picassoian means of multiple perspectives happening at the same time to literally invent a new way of telling a story and it's cohesive that's the yeah. thing that's so crazy is that all of and we'll, we'll get to this in a minute we're about to keep going but all of these elements that we're discussing about multi-perspectal um, viewpoints on events are tied to character emotions in the same way that neo dodging bullets is to bullet time like that's what's so fucking mind-blowing is that they're so smart and they understand structure and character so well that they can take these extremely avant-garde ideas smuggle them into a 200 million dollar studio movie and then make it work yeah and, and it's because they're they're using they're using these techniques um pointedly in in ways um they're using them as as specific tools to accomplish goals as opposed to we're just going to do this weird thing or like we got this idea of a style of a way that this this that this happens. They 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 have specific goals and they're using those those invented techniques to accomplish those goals. And, you know, it's kind of, you know, going back to the, the literature thing, um, you know, uh, like. I'm a huge fan of. Uh, I mean, Moby Dick is my favorite book of all time. Like that's just, oh, really? yeah, that, that. that is my favorite book of all time. I'm also uh, a fan of Ernest Hemingway and sort of his philosophy and Hemingway's philosophy is about simplicity and basically learning all of the rules so that you can ignore 90% of them and, you know, laser etch your intentions on the page using 1% of your your available tools uh because you 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 know all of them you understand all of them and so you know which ones to pick and which ones to 
toss out. And that sort of economy of storytelling or economy of creation, that's a really fascinating concept and effective in, in, in many situations. And it's, it's a very attractive philosophy because it has, it's, it, there, there's a lot of order to it. And it's, it's a way to organize your thoughts and it's a way to compartmentalize them. And it's a helpful philosophy for structuring the ideas in your head and focusing them. But something like Moby Dick or Speed Racer is a really good foil to that philosophy in that it's kind of the opposite. It's like you have a lot of specific ideas you're trying to get out. You have a lot of goals in what story you're trying to tell. And you have a million different tools for accomplishing that. Whatever they may be, all the traditional filmmaking tools, all the traditional visual pieces of vocabulary, all these new things that you're having ideas for. And like, oh, what if like there's all these different people that are watching things from different parts of the world? And instead of cutting back and forth between them, we'll just show all of them on screen at the same time. Like you have a million different tools and the philosophy is basically like use everything when it's appropriate. You have you have all these tools at your disposal. You have all these ideas indiscriminately use them all whenever the situation arises. You want to tell this right now. You want to you want to convey this emotion right now. What thing would best convey that emotion out of these million different things that you can do here? Use that. Just pluck it out of there. Maybe that's the only time you'll ever use that. Maybe you'll use it five more times. Doesn't fucking matter. Use whatever you need to use at any given moment at every turn in this. Just use in this specific singular moment, the best piece of the, the best tool that you have. And it reminds me of our discussion for Andrew Getty for, for the evil within in that that movie is packed with ideas. He accomplished a similar thing for a different reason. Uh, the Wachowskis obviously have a very great command of their craft, whereas Andrew Getty did not. He did not understand how to make a movie through his lack of understanding of what he was doing. He achieved pure inspiration in some ways. He had a million ideas and he just didn't know to pare them down and focus in on a couple different techniques. So whether it was like a weird stop motion thing or like a weird like old, you know, uh, double exposure trick or, you know, like a practical effect, he just he just used whatever he could think of that he that conveyed his idea the best. Speed Racer is a metaphor for the Wachowski's time in Hollywood. Speed is a stand-in for the Wachowskis and their struggle to remain true to their artistic intentions and ascend through the ranks of Hollywood. I mean, there's literally a scene where Speed is meeting with Royalton, the duplicitous businessman at the center of the movie, where he's sitting in front of a massive stack of contracts. And like there's there's an there's like an engine right behind him. <laughs> yeah. He's sitting he's sitting in front of a just an engine and then a pristine white engine. He's sitting in front of this glo this map of the world. Like I control the world. I am I am I am the world. I am the 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 status quo, which is so great. But basically, it's it's Harvey Weinstein. Harvey Weinstein is yelling at uh, Speed Racer. Fuck you. Sign these contracts. Give me your soul. A hundred percent. And it also reminds me that that scene reminds me. I mean, the whole movie reminds me, but. Uh, it reminds me of the fact that one of the tools that the that the Wachowskis use is extreme campiness. 
And I think that that's a lot of a lot of the reason why people hated this movie and did not like it is because they saw it and they just didn't understand what they were watching. And they thought it was this really weird, cheesy, dumb thing. And it's like, you don't get it like that is a tool that they're using. How else do you tell a story about a fucking kid who just loves racing who like has a little brother who has like a pet monkey and tell this like stone cold serious story about car racing with these over the top characters unless you utilize that oscillation between sincerity and extreme camp like it's a tool that they're using and honestly like from all the reactions that i heard back in the day when the movie came out and the people that hated it and the people that i talked about it like that was the thing that was the overwhelming reason or the the thing that people didn't like about it was that it was just cheesy and yeah i just remember i just remember thinking like that's just you're missing the point it, it that's part of it it reminds me of paul verhoven's work and how I've always loved his social and political satire. And, you know, a lot of people that I've known have always talked, have always criticized um, his movies as being uh, too over the top, too ham fisted. But I've always sort of maintained the idea that Verhoeven uses ham fistedness and extreme campiness as a tool in his arsenal to sell his satire in a very effective and simple way. There are things that he talks about in those movies that are horrifying and that if you were to gaze upon them in a more straightforward, unflinching way, you would turn away. You would look away from it. Some of the things that happen in Robocop and Starship Troopers, if they were told in a more realistic way, you would be sickened. You would be like, this is not my world. This is some horrible, grim reality. And you wouldn't be able to watch it. But he uses that campiness and that sort of like colorful, comic booky aesthetic to sell you those horrifying pieces of information in a way that's more palatable to you. So these really dark, grim depictions of a future totalitarian police state are couched in this goofiness that makes the medicine go down better. And you retain that and then you're able to then later on connect it with more realistic things. You can look at what's going on in the state of the world right now and be like, we're living in RoboCop. Whereas before, you know, maybe the iconography of RoboCop wouldn't be so resonant with you if it was more of a gritty, realistic 21 grams version of that world. I kind of want to watch 21 grams RoboCop now, though. <laughs> like, I mean, I kind of I I mean, need. Of course. That. The film is all about staying true to your artistic vision and attempting to work within a system that's compromised and rigged against you. The second act climax is Richard Roundtree's Ben Burns telling Speed that the system is just rigged against him, point blank, and the only solution is compromise. The thematic elements of the story all tie into how the story is told visually. The film uses the continual kaleidoscopic edits, montages, and rapidly altering camera positions to establish a visual language that is distinct. Take the desert race sequence, for example. Three different perspectives in that shot. Four, two different perspectives in that shot. It's just so cool. It look, it's, 
It's so cool. Yeah, and the way and the way that you can the way that this style you can connect different ideas uh, together in sort of a single visual image or a single moment, as opposed to having to like connect them with a series of cuts. Uh, and and as the Wachowski say in that interview. Uh, you know, at the end of the day, whatever their sort of thematic goals are, ultimately, it just makes them able to tell more story faster. Like in the sequence where they're they're showing how all of the racers have been bribed to work against speed, that's happening in the race itself. Like you're you're not cutting back to the like a couple shots of these people being hired, and then you just have something like this where he's just sword fighting with a a car using a joystick with their little like tire things sword fighting god if this if this was real life those people would be so dead yep <laughs> go fuck yourself mad max fury road right it's just so kinetic too like yeah. every every shot has energy in it even the ones that are just like close ups of the actors a lot of filmmakers use transitions inventively. I mean, we talked about Edgar Wright earlier, and obviously he's one of those filmmakers that kind of jumps out as utilizing editing and transitions in a very inventive way. And I love that, and I love what he does, but the way that this movie's put together, simultaneously, the you know, the, 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 the editing, the transitions, the way everything is composited and, and put together, it's all very cool and very inventive, but it's also part of the storytelling. And first and foremost, the way that they're able to connect ideas in singular visual moments is revolutionary. And the the Hitchcock thing that he talks about, if you have a shot of an old man looking over a balcony and he smiles and then you cut away to a woman with her baby, then it is a nice old man. But if you have the same shot of the old man looking and smiling, and then it cuts away to a younger woman in a bikini, then he is a dirty old man. That idea of connecting shots to create context and connect ideas and how the the ideas can be. I can't believe you committed to that <laughs> the whole time. <laughs> but the, the, that idea of connecting ideas and how how and his whole thing is like what he's saying there is that you can change the context of ideas by juxtaposing images. But the, but that juxtaposition always requires a cut. It always requires here's shot A, here's shot B. Um, even even like a diopter shot is two shots it's like here's shot a and here's shot b and we have composited them together but it's still two shots whereas this completely throws out that out the window and it shows you that you can convey you can connect two ideas with a single singular visual imagery and it's funny because it actually reminds me i i in a very it's in a much simpler way a descendant or a progeny of this concept is the reaction videos that we do for Facebook. We we mm. do these, we do these reaction videos where we watch something and we kind of deliver a running commentary on it 
facebook.com slash deep cuts pod. So we'll watch like whatever, some old Japanese tokusatsu movie from the seventies. And we'll sit there and be like, you know, this was made in 1976 and it's blah, 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 blah. blah, And you know, it's made by these people. And the way that the videos are put together is that we have the video playing on the top and then on the bottom underneath the video, we have the two of us sitting on a couch looking forward at the, at the screen, at the viewer. And we are looking at things, we're reacting to what's going on in the video, and we're talking about it, but we're also looking at the viewer. So two different ideas are being conveyed simultaneously in that way. Because another way you could do that is you could just have the video and then you could cut away to us sitting somewhere. You could have a shot of us sitting in a living room over the shoulder with a TV in front of us. And then the image could be on the TV and it could keep cutting back and forth between the video footage and the over the shoulder shot. And then you'd have to be basically cutting back and forth throughout the entire thing. And then you have sort of these two different ideas uh, juxtaposed together where you have the thing that they're watching, which is like a cool video that the you, the person who's watching the video would want to see. And then you also have us talking about it. And the way that you convey that is by that cutting of like, oh, here's the video. Oh, they're sitting in a living room and we can see that they're watching it on a TV or whatever it is. It convolutes the visual vocabulary of the video. It would it would be kind of disorienting uh, for somebody scrolling through Facebook to see that and kind of be like, what's going on here? But in the simplest millisecond of time, you scroll by that video, you see the video footage, you see us sitting on a couch, staring forward, talking about something. You immediately connect those two images. You know that we are watching the video and you see the video you can, yeah, but you can also see our faces. You can see us talking. So several pieces like, of information. It's like four times the amount of visual information as if you did something in the traditional cut, react, cut, react. Yeah. Or, uh, or even the Mystery Science Theater 3000 thing of the back of our heads, because then you can't see facial expressions. You don't immediately grab, get that like human facial uh, recognition that sort of grabs your eye and makes you feel empathy. That composition is conveying like three or four different pieces of information simultaneously at at the single instant that you see the video. And then you become, you know, ideally you stop and you start becoming interested in seeing it because not only do you want to see the video, but you also want to see what we're talking about. You become interested in us as human beings. I feel like I've been heavily inspired by this movie in my own filmmaking. I don't know if I necessarily consciously thought about that whenever I created the way our videos look, but it certainly seems to me like it was in some way subconsciously inspired, maybe not by this movie directly, but just the way that this movie has inspired idea conveyance in visual uh, moving images in general. Take the desert rat sequence, for instance. Shifting mountains, wipe cuts, foreground, background transitions, and profile wipes that are all employed to build a new way of telling stories that literally hadn't been done to this point. Even just the shifting foreground background elements are enough for a visual mechanic to build an entire race around. But Speed Racer isn't concerned about that. It wants to constantly approach iteration on these ideas and setups. We became kind of interested in this dynamic where Picasso began thinking like, well, why do I have to just see what I'm looking at when I can imagine seeing it from over here at the same time? Why do I have to just limit myself to this single perspective? Why can't I see it simultaneously from this other perspective? So we are wondering, is there a way to do that kind of thing 
in in a movie where you're constantly shifting perspectives and you're blending them and blurring them and we didn't and we thought that it was kind of funny that Picasso ended up flattening things out and then sort of merging them together and cell animation kind of has this similar thing where it flattens and layers and we thought it's kind of cubist but it's kind of also cell animation so we thought maybe there was something there and then we began montaging stuff and sort of playing with it in the avid and and it's a very modern movie i mean it's a digital movie it could not be made on a, on a flatbed you couldn't make this editorial sequence without computer this cubism in relation to a narrative idea on display is you know kind of throughout the whole movie um for instance uh one of these key examples is uh, the scene in which a group of characters are all waiting for a race to start so you know this is a typical it's a typical okay we're all of the people are getting into their race cars and everybody's kind of getting ready and we're intercutting between the car engines turning on and all the supporting characters looking and as you move further and further into the race and as tension builds the layers start compacting and you start getting the different geographic locations all happening on screen simultaneously together at once and you get you know 50 different people's close-ups layered and swiping back and forth over each other which is just such an interesting way of building tension and the funny thing is i don't even necessarily know if it's completely successful in this version but man it's an idea like this is this is bullet po- time 2.0. It's just nobody was ready for it. Like, yeah. this is so inventive. Yeah, I mean, successful, uh, I, I, I feel like there's a, a strong case to be made for yes. Uh, but either way, whether whether or not it was specifically successful, I, I definitely think the one thing I will say is um, this movie, you know, there's, there's, there's a million things going on at, at any given time. Uh, in the way that things are being presented, the editing, uh, the movie is just loaded to the gills with all of this computer-generated imagery. Um, and no matter how convoluted the the uh, the 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 editing becomes, no matter how overwhelming the uh, CGI becomes, no matter how just like totally a fucking video game it it becomes like you always know what's happening you never get lost you never get confused everything is always cohesive from beginning to end and you can imagine that in something like this like you you look at this on its face you look at this from a from a from a macro perspective and you're like oh this is like this is fucking just overwhelming this is this is like visual salad like and you would assume like you would just sit there and it would just wash over you and you just would not know what's going on the entire time because just a million things are happening. And I'm sure there's some fucking uncles out there who did think that. And they're just like, I saw it and I didn't know what the hell was going on the whole time. But fuck that. You know what's going on the whole time from beginning to end. It guides you through that movie. It guides you through the convolution of everything perfectly effortlessly you know compare it to something like you know like these like the transformers movies which are way less convoluted and complicated in terms of the 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 cinematography the visual language and the use of cgi and yet 
you genuinely don't know what the fuck is going on throughout those entire movies. Yeah, like the compositions just, are ugly. They're, yeah. they're either too close or too far away. All of the color palettes are the same. It's just silverware punching itself for two hours. Yeah, and I, I like, I like started watching Transformers two, no Transformers three, on TV one time years ago, and there was like this big fight sequence, and all these Transformers were fighting each other, and there's these big aerial shots, and I'm just like, who the fuck is that? And then like, uh, one of the Transformers like dies, and I'm just like, I don't know who that is like i don't i can't care i i I didn't which one is that is that is that the guy who was there before and he was talking to this other guy or was that a different guy and you have no idea what's going on at all and it's like the the overall effect of it is that it's boring like because you don't know what's what's happening your mind just like unfocuses and stops paying attention and then you get super bored whereas this way more shit is going on it's way more overwhelming and yet you're engaged throughout the entire thing you always know know what's happening you always know which characters are which you always know the context in which you are in at any given moment the traditional way to do this would be to build tension through a series of sequential intercutting close-ups think sergio leone's western films or anytime they have to cut inside iron man's mask you're using a close-up to build tension or emotional intimacy but imagine the good, the bad, and the ugly done like this. I would love that. I would love <laughs> or, that. Or Once Upon a Time in the West. I w- can you imagine Charles Bronson just like zipping around? <laughs> I would I would love that. It's Instead of all the horse, it's just horse racing. Yeah. <laughs> it's just chase sequences to the desert on horses. <laughs> Clint Eastwood hits a button and a and a two legs metal legs dump out of the bottom of the horse and the horse flips over (laughs) i kind of want to make a a western shot on a green screen and done like this now i mean you don't have to ask me twice the idea of simultaneous viewing is also related to the theme of the movie an artist creates a work for people to look at and then come away with emotional responses from this is the act of showing a movie in the case of the wachowskis people all over the world have different viewpoints on the same story, which is also related to the fact that Speed Racer originated in Japan and is now being adapted by two American sisters, starring a cast of actors from literally all over the globe. During a key sequence in the movie, Speed is offered money and fame and fortune if he compromises his artistic integrity. But he refuses. He wants to race because it's the only thing he knows how to do. It makes him feel alive. He has to race for the sake of racing, which is exactly how the Wachowskis feel about movies. It's their art form. They didn't want to do anything else. And you know, I'm sure they had to compromise more than the idealistic protagonist in this film. However, when you look at their body of work, the most impressive aspect of it is that they swing for the fences every time. Did you think that we'd be talking about James Joyce and Pablo Picasso in a podcast about Speed Racer? Hell no. But the Wachowskis have really put their all into this movie, even down to minor things like the fact that the tropes of sports commentators are twisted and used to comment on the elevated status of film reviewers and how they are both important and meaningless at the same time. Even the kind of lame twist that Speed Racer and Racer X are brothers is used to thematically show that the Wachowskis aren't working in a vacuum. 
there have been other artists that have come before, and their work is going to be compared to it, like the sequence where Speed is literally chasing the ghost of his brother's accomplishments. Using Speed. the using the iconography of video games, where you are, you know that you race against a a, a, yes. a past race. Racer X represents all of the thematic ideas of all the artists that have come before and had accomplishments and who built a foundation for today's artists to work off of. The climax of the film is a representation of how truly authentic artistic expression, when juxtaposed against corporately produced art, will win out every time. The big reveal is that the racer that Speed has been racing against is cheating and everyone has now realized that Royalston's a fraud. Now it's up to speed to win against all odds. And we're intercutting between all of these different commentators speaking in different languages. Oh, look at that. Matthew Fox telling the main character that he needs to follow his heart and listen to his true artistic impulses and not sell out. I also like the way the movie uses, uh, like, giant screens mm-hmm. to... to uh non-diegetically juxtapose the different ideas and perspectives like sometimes it's just totally diegetic it's like there's they've just superimposed images in a way that is not within the world and then sometimes they use those giant screens to show somebody's face in the background with a person in front of it watching the screen or with the screen behind them uh to to compress the the storytelling in that way also remember matthew fox remember remember when he was a thing it's just so visually compelling. Like, it's yeah. so cool. It's just, it's a living, breathing world. Holistically created from scratch. In a way that is so much more effective than, you know, another another movie, another comic book movie shot on green screen. Uh, sort of creating a world digitally. One of the early examples of, like, a movie shot completely digitally on a green screen is uh, Sin City. Which, you know, when I, at the time I loved Sin City, definitely does not hold up as well as, uh, you know, it did when I watched it whenever I was in high school. Uh, I, I feel like in many ways its stylistic approaches kind of date it a lot, whereas this still, it's, it's, it's still modern. It's still, it still holds up visually. And the speed lines, too, are just so purposeful and make it feel like every movement is, like, dialed up to, like, 11 because of those digital speed trails that are like Akira. Yeah. And the way that the reactions are just sort of, like, adding texture to the buildup of the emotion. God damn. That's how you fucking end a race. God damn. <laughs> and, and, you know, speaking of which, that that's that's kind of the thing. Uh, I, I, I've, I've thought about this a lot because, you know, there there's a lot of movies... Um, uh, that, that I've, I've always thought that it's really interesting when a movie is able to make you interested in something that you have no interest in whatsoever. And, you know, I've always thought about like, how, how, you know, how do you accomplish that? How do you, how do you tell a story about something that is just completely uninteresting to somebody and make them really care about it? And I think that number one, because I don't give a fuck about car racing at all. Like maybe you do, but I just don't at all. Uh, do you really? You just just think that through for a minute. Do you really think that I care about? I mean, I, I I don't, but I just I don't want to make assumptions. But because I would have never thought that you were like balls deep in trading card games. Um, <laughs> but uh, 
Um, uh, you, you, you have some, uh, you got something to say? You got something to say? <laughs> I mean, obviously, obviously the fact that you played Versus System makes more sense than if you were in a NASCAR, but I'm just saying that it, I was genuinely surprised that you were that into it. Yeah, I, I don't give a fuck about racing at all. This movie just really, I mean, it's like, how could, how could, how could I love a movie about car racing this much? And there, there are other movies that do that as well. There's, there's movies, there's like, I don't care about sports and there are sports movies that I like and, and, and so on and so forth. I don't know how that's in general accomplished. Uh, you know, I, I think ultimately it's just the movie's good and it's just a good story. So it doesn't really matter what it's about. But in this movie specifically, it visually, conveys their love for racing the whole the way the, the world is conveyed like that whole sequence we just watched and how it's like he's fucking flying through the air and he goes into warp speed and then there's like the checkered the, the checkered flag is represented as this just warp vortex that he's in and he's and it's like ever it's like all of the color and the visuals it's like it's visually conveying his passion for racing in a way that is visually conveyed to you so that you can love racing with him based on the visual presentation of it. It's a stylistic thing. It's like I said before with the matrix and how Neo learns to read, to read the code in real time. And the way that they visually convey that to us is showing the code. And then we start to see images in the code and then we can see people and things in the code. And that's not really what he's seeing, but it's conveying to us that he's reading it in that way in a by translating it into a simple visual representation that anybody can understand. And in this way, it's the same thing. It's it's the every every detail of this world that's been crafted is a visual representation of his passion for racing or their the whole everybody's passion for racing this world's passion for racing which is really the wachowski's passion for movies yeah like it's it's so cool and it's ironic that the movie is all about staying true to your artistic voice when you're making a 250 million dollar corporate produced intellectual property farmed piece of shit yeah like i think the movie's great but it could have very easily not been um, and it, it, it's just so impressive that they took this big a swing. Like, this is The Matrix 2. The Matrix 2 and 3 are fine, but this is The Matrix 2. This yeah. is the big swing. This is the big hero's journey. Like, it's kind of the same story, too. Sort of lack of compromise, becoming who you're really meant to be by sticking to your guns and fighting for what you believe in. And it kind of ends the same way, too, of, like, instead of Neo flying up into into the sky while Rage Against the Machine plays, Speed soars over the other cars and goes into a vortex while the crowd goes wild. Mm -hmm. You know, it's the same visual metaphor of the character has achieved oneness and is ascending to greatness by flying through the air. Um, And John Goodman is Morpheus. (laughs) Speed Racer literally invented a new way of telling stories visually. Unlike some other directors who push visual elements in their work, it's actually tied to character and theme, which makes it so much more impressively constructed. And that's what I was kind of saying. That's what I was kind of saying really quick, just about uh, Sin City, that that I, I loved Sin City at the time. I mean, I still don't dislike it, but I loved it at the time a lot. And, you know, it was very exciting to watch. But the thing about Sin City is that all of its visuals 
all they're trying to accomplish is to just look like the panels in that comic. Like that's all that they're trying to do with that. There's nothing more than that, which is admirable and impressive from a uh, purist perspective of like, we are, we're just, we're not going to take any of these like fucking X-Men, like leather suit bullshit um, liberties with this. We are just give it, we're, 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 we're basically kneeling in front of Frank Miller and saying, we will do our best to make this look exactly like your book. But from a storytelling perspective, it, it's kind of meaningless. It, it has nothing to do with anything. It's, it's just, it's just, it's just there as like, it's impressive that you made this look like the book. Uh, it adds well, nothing. Also, it's, it's supposed to be a visual, you know, hearkening back to the visuals of the noir movies that inspired it. And yeah, but you know, there's supposed to be like the, the irony of juxtaposition in that all of the characters are gray. Nobody's really good or bad. And yet the movie is told in black and white. But ultimately it's all stylistic. Yeah. Um, whereas like, as you're saying this, this, it all has a purpose and that purpose makes the visuals timeless. Even if some of the CGI is a little dated looking. And even if like, it was shot on digital in the early days of digital. So it kind of looks like a soap opera sometimes, but it doesn't matter. It transcends all of that. Yeah. I completely agree. I, it, it this, the, the imperfections in, you know, sometimes like there's one shot where race is pulling up outside of school, I think. And like the car, it's supposed to be an innocent, simplistic car, but it just looks bad. Like it, it just really looks bad. Yeah. Um, and there are a couple sequences in the movie like that where it's like, oh, I see what you're trying to do. And if you had just put like a gradient on that flat green screen color, it would look more purposeful. But it's just like a wall of a solid pink and it doesn't quite work the way you want it to. But like that's literally like, you know, one percent of the movie. The majority of the movie is just flawless. However, as with many films that come out that are weird or new or different, people rejected Speed Racer. Like, they really did not like Speed Racer. Another science fiction movie that takes place in the near future that has a very specific visual aesthetic and that was initially rejected upon its initial release was Blade Runner. However, since its release, people have come to exalt it and they often point to it as one of the greatest films ever produced. In many ways, this appears to be the arc for Speed Racer as well. Unfortunately, this wildly innovative and boundary-pushing work is now relegated to the cult classic subgenre, as opposed to the highly acclaimed watershed moment that it should have been. So basically what we're saying is, we're looking forward to 40 years from now, when Speed Racer 3029 is released and loses a ton of money at the box office, but is another great-ass movie. What was your experience with this movie coming out and just the reaction and what was going on? I hated it. What was going on around you? I hated it. I hated it. I did not like it. I, I could only see, I could only see the, the aspects that we were talking about where like, you know, there's a matte shot here that looks kind of weird or there's a, you know, a, a sequence that's maybe doesn't quite work the way it, you know, the, the, I could only see the flaws because things were, because of the cacophony of information and the fact that everything works so well. When I first watched it, I could only focus on the things that didn't work right. And I, I really didn't like it. And then I had to like, I had to like take a step back 
And then like, I think like maybe a year after it was released, I'm like, I'm going to give this another shot. And I watched it again and I was like, oh, oh, I, I totally get it now. I completely can see what they're doing and why they're doing it and how it's related to character. And the central thematic through line is just so crisp and clean like an arrow. But it was just not at all what I thought it was going to be. And so I was when I first watched it. And so I was just kind of like, what is this? Well, that's interesting. I, I, I sort of had I had the completely opposite experience. Not that I necessarily understood or recognized any of these things that we're sort of meditating on right now. But I I loved it immediately. I, I, I loved it. I, I, I saw it in the theater and I loved it immediately. And I just immediately became like a an apologist or like a defender of it because everybody hated it. And everybody just had those sort of like, you know, shitty takes on it of just like, Oh, it was like, what the fuck was that? It was just like super cheesy. And like I said, I'm not saying that I, I, I fully understood like what was so great about it at the time or that I could have articulated any of the stuff that we're talking about. But I just thought it was so great. And I I saw it in the theater like six or seven times. Oh, yeah, Jesus. Because, yeah, because I saw it in the theater with some maybe I either saw it in the theater with some friends or my family. And then I went. Well, and we know we know that you didn't see it in the theater with me, because if you did, it would have been bad. Yes, exactly. It, by not because you hated it, but by virtue of if we had saw, seen it together, it therefore would be bad it has to be bad yeah. yes um but yeah i i saw it in the theater with like friends or family or whatever it was and then i saw it again in the theater with like a different group of friends or just friends if i saw it with my family and then after that it went to second run theater and we had we had a, a we had a small like second run dollar theater that i'd go to movies at a lot and I saw it there like five more times because that was just a thing you could do is just go see movies super cheap with friends over and over again. So like I saw like I saw Scott Pilgrim versus the world 12 times in theaters because of the because of that, because of the dollar theater. And I, I saw this like six. Um, I'm trying and, to go to that theater, except not right now because there's a pandemic. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I, I loved it from from day one. Um, and then I and then I got it on blu-ray when it came out watched it a bunch then i no longer have the blu-ray for a long time i kind of forgot about it and then i think the first time i really started thinking about it again was when we talked about it on the sophia stewart episode it's funny how that kind of happens where you like you you like fall in love with something or a piece of media or a movie or whatever and it it kind of leaves your orbit for a minute and you don't love it any less but you're just not paying attention to it in that same way yeah like i've got a couple movies like that where i've like kind of forgotten that they've existed and then seen it on TV or whatever. And and then you're just like, oh, fuck, I love this. Why don't I watch this every fucking day? Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's how I feel about Sam Raimi movies. Like almost without exception. Like right now, my idea is like, yeah, I don't really care about Quick and the Dead. I don't, I don't really need to watch that movie. But if Quicker and the Dead was on, I'd probably be like, fuck, I love this movie. Yeah. I mean, it's it's like it's like Arby's like. Arby no, it's not like Arby's, Arby's is Arby's is actually very good. No, it's, it's not. Like it's, Arby's. it's it's like one of the best fast food places. But for some reason, you just never go to it. Like no. nobody ever goes to Arby's. But Arby's is. 
it, it's great. It's it's like one of the greatest fast food places, but you just don't go. Why don't we go? Why don't we all go to Arby's all the time? This has been Deep Cuts. I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Please sub the show. Uh, you can find me online at www.heydavebaker.com where you can purchase my comics like the critically acclaimed indie darling queer romance comic fuck off squad and the incomprehensible art comic that no one cares about but me action hospital and you can find me going on a zany adventure through a giant warehouse full of hijinks and visual mastery with my pet monkey chim chim and you can also find me at dapricerights.com. Dapricerights.com, yeah. Uh, where you can buy my comic, Deadbolt, AI Private Eye. Deep Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it, please visit boygeniusmedia.com or deepcutspod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.